Well, before we uh, begin with prayer, um, I just want to encourage you to do something this week. I, I don't believe in holy days of obligation, uh, but we do have a wonderful opportunity as we focus in on Resurrection Sunday to really be salt and light in our community. I want to encourage you to step out while people are curious about the Easter season, and I, I want you to, to reach out and invite them to come to church next Sunday. I want us to be gloriously uncomfortable with so many people here in this room next Sunday. I want you to invite them, and I know you're probably saying to yourself, well, they, they might not like our style of music, or, or you know, maybe they might be intimidated by the way we dress. Don't let that be an issue, because I promise you, whoever stands in this pulpit will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what people need. That, that is the remedy for their sin sickness. And they will hear that. Let them come and, and hear the gospel. Let them come and see and witness your love for one another. But most of all, let them come and see how we want to lift up and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something I, I'm intending to do to try to draw you and trick you into some kind of high attendance Sunday kind of thing that, that's going on. It really is a desire to see Christ proclaimed in our community. And so I want to encourage you. Take that step. If you want, grab one of those Easter booklets that's in the back and go to your neighbor next door and say, hey, I brought this for your kids, but uh, I noticed that I don't see the car moving on Sunday morning. Uh, maybe you don't have a place to, to worship on Sundays. We'd love you to come and worship with us this coming Sunday. I want to encourage you to, to be so bold as to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would work in us right now, that we would see your sovereign rule over our lives, and in the midst of it, Lord, we would humbly bow the knee, and we would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit would work through the Word right now, that it would shape and mold us into the image of Christ. That we would be willing, Lord, to, to go in the dark places if you should so call us, trusting in you in complete faith. We pray also, Lord, that we would make much of Jesus this morning. That he would be the one that we are honoring. That he would be the one, Lord, that is brought to the forefront of our lives. And that we would fall in love with him all over again. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, I know it's been a while since I've been here, haven't it? Two weeks. Uh, I was uh, traveling, uh, helping my mom move into her new house uh, this, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then last weekend, Evie and I had our camp out. Um, and even today, uh, immediately after the service, I'm driving back to South Carolina. It's my mom's 80th birthday, and we're celebrating. Hi, Mom. Uh, she watches every Sunday, by the way, so I'm happy birthday uh, to be able to do that. Um, and so I'll be leaving immediately after the service. But I, first of all, I, I think both Brian and Daniel have done a commendable job. Thank you, brothers, for feeding the flock. I'm grateful. But it is time to resume our study in Matthew. I, I didn't plan on being at chapter 21, verse 1 on Palm Sunday. The Lord and his providence has provided that. It's, it's wonderful as we begin contemplating the week uh, that precedes Resurrection Sunday. It was a week that, that not only changed human history, but, but also universal history. 
Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, that, that by the atonement of Jesus, he would reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It was the cross and the subsequent resurrection that changed everything. And the Lord is gracious to allow us to, to think deeply upon what we refer to as Holy Week when Jesus approaches the cross in Matthew's gospel here. Now, previously in this gospel, we've seen Jesus journey towards Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. All of his ministry has been leading to this specific point. And as he's been making his way to Jerusalem, he's been revealing to his disciples what he is going to do there. He tells them he's going to suffer, to, to die, and also to rise from the grave. The last prediction of that came in our previous chapter, in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And now, on the first day of the week, Jesus has arrived just on the outskirts of the city, approaching the village of Bethpagae, which is located on the Mount of Olives. It's significant that Jesus' journey begins here. When, when the prophet Ezekiel had his vision of the glory of the Lord departing the temple due to its corruption, God's glory left and it resided on the Mount of Olives. You can find that account in Ezekiel 11. And now God himself, the king of glory, is returning to the city to make the ultimate sacrifice to restore the people of God to a right relationship. Jesus himself will fulfill the meaning of the temple, a place of atonement to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. And at the day's end, he will return back to this area and reside at the village of Bethany in the home of his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And he's going to do this every evening of the upcoming week, except on the last night when he'll go to the garden and pray that his father's will will be done. And of course, it's on that night that he's going to be arrested and he will endure the cross the following day. The beauty of the next 17 verses is that there are several themes that flow through them. Now, I don't often use alliteration, but I thought it might be helpful for you to remember these. They are requirement, reception, renewal, and recognition. Requirement, reception, renewal, and recognition. And we're going to take each one of these in turn as we work our way through this passage. The, the first thing that we see here is the requirements of Jesus. As part of his mission, Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. He does so not only to be the perfect sacrifice, the, the lamb without blemish, but also to prove his messiahship. He must be completely obedient to the law without sin, and he must fulfill prophecy as the Messiah. And we see him being intentional about this from the outset as he gives this instruction to his disciples concerning the cult he's going to ride on. Now, there are those that believe that Jesus is somehow supernaturally providing this donkey and cult for the disciples to take. That possibly may be the case. But I think that it's better to think that Jesus arranged this beforehand the last time that he was with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He who knew the fullness of time knew the precise moment that both animals would be needed. And Jesus is not stealing these beasts. 
The owner is aware of Jesus' need for them and gives his consent. But, but Jesus will have these animals in order to ride into the city. And it was so. Verse 6 tells us the disciples did exactly as Jesus instructed. We are told this was in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, if we can, let's turn there so we can see that verse within its context. Zechariah chapter 9, we'll start at verse 9. This is found on page 797 of your pew Bible. And what we'll see in this passage is that there is this messianic figure that comes to Jerusalem to rescue the Lord's people from their enemies and to establish his rule and to restore hope. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17 here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now get this, look, look at these I will statements here. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, and note the reason why here, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return from your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Now, to be transparent here, in reading this passage, we would assume that the enemies being conquered here are the enemy Gentile nations that precede verse 9. But there is more being offered in the blood covenant here than just freedom from war and oppression from the Gentiles. If we see in this text, we also see salvation. We see judgment on the nations. We see everlasting peace. We see eternal blessing. We see eternal rule. The greatest enemy to true Israel is sin and death. And that is what Jesus comes to defeat in his first advent. Jesus rides upon the animals of a conquering hero because he comes to defeat mankind's greatest enemy, death. And with this triumphal entry, there are also overtones of Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And of course, 
We also have Psalm 24 that we read earlier in the service. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The moment is palpable, isn't it? You can almost feel it. The king is coming. The king of glory. Very God himself. He's about to ride into the city on a humble donkey. In the parallel accounts of Mark and Luke, we're told that the animals were unbroken. They have never been tamed. And yet Jesus climbs upon one of them with complete control. After all, he is their maker. The God-man who calmed the storm and restored the peace to demoniacs back in chapter 8, the one for whom the wind ceased back in chapter 14, has no problems calming the beast that he's going to ride through a throng of people upon. On this visit, he will ride upon a donkey as the victor who conquers death. But upon his next visit to the earth, he'll be riding upon a white steed, and he will defeat all those who still rebel against him. In Revelation 19, 11, John saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But this time, even though he conquers death, his humility will be displayed as he draws sinners unto himself, as the approachable Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, is fulfilling all requirements of the law and prophecies concerning himself. Next, we see the reception that he receives. First, the disciples. They honor the Lord by laying their cloaks upon the animal's back so that Jesus may ride upon them. They will walk alongside the Lord in the procession. They'll get the privilege of of being seen as his entourage. They will help lead the cheers. But then we also see the crowd gets involved. Now, to be certain, it was not unusual for the citizens of Jerusalem to welcome pilgrims into the city during Passover season. Nor was it unusual for them to declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would encourage people as they approached the holy city to make their sacrifices. But there is a different nuance that is happening here, which will also allow Jesus to fulfill more prophecy. A large crowd is gathering to receive Jesus, and they're lining the way for him. According to verse 8, they're throwing their cloaks before him, and they're cutting down branches for him so that even the feet of his colt or donkeys would not be soiled. This was a king's welcome. They are shouting the words of Psalm 118 at Jesus, a, a messianic psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Greek word, Hosanna, means save us. These people are shouting to Jesus, please save us, son of David, which is utterly fascinating. Because salvation in this sense can only be in reference to God's wrath as Passover nears. The crowds are welcoming Jesus as king and as savior. And according to Luke's account, it was this initial acknowledgement from the crowds that first drew the anger of the religious leaders. Now, Matthew's going to save their reaction for a little later in his story. But Luke 19, verses 39 through 40 reveals, And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. 
They want Jesus to stop this adulation. How dare he receive acclamation that only the Messiah should receive? But Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The people cannot help themselves. Even if the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge him, the Savior of the world is here. We're told in verse 10 of Matthew 21 that that such was the reception that it caused all of Jerusalem to be stirred up because Jesus arrives. Messiah has come to renew all things. And we get a glimpse of it here on this first day. As soon as Jesus enters the city, he dismounts and he goes directly to the temple, which will also fulfill more prophecy. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. Now, let me explain what Jesus is doing. As required by law, people were to bring their individual sacrificial animals to the temple. Some citizens of Israel traveled great distances and planned on purchasing such an animal in Jerusalem rather than toting it along the way. According to Acts chapter 2, there were Jews from as far away as Libya and, and Egypt and Italy. So, of course, not only would one need to purchase an animal but they would also need to exchange money for a fee, which was offered in the temple precinct of all places. This was no longer a matter of convenience for pilgrims. It was a way to make profit from them. And Jesus clears them out by his divine authority. He he speaks those words that he used in his temptation back in chapter 4. It is written. He is following his father's command. And then he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer. He is concerned that the temple becomes a place to meet Yahweh, not a place to conduct business transactions. In John chapter 2, his disciples will apply Psalm 69, 9 to him, where it says, Zeal for my house will consume me. He will obey every word from his father. Jesus cleanses the temple to show that he is here to bring renewal, to bring restoration. He's not starting a riot as some recently proposed during the BLM movements. Note carefully the tables he is overturning belong to the money changers, and the whip is to drive out the animals that were being offered for sale. There is no violence with Jesus. There is no destruction of public property. There is a return to the order of the law of God. No one stops his boldness because he is right. And he will demonstrate that he comes to renew and restore even more, as we see here in verse 14, that he spends the rest of the day within the temple healing the blind and the lame. The lame can walk again. The blind have their sight restored. Matthew is the only gospel that reveals this little tidbit. But, but ever since chapter 4, verse 23, and all throughout, the author has been showing Jesus' remarkable works of healing as proof of his Messiahship and that he is ushering in a new kingdom. This king will restore uh, what was once lost, what was once broken, what was once diseased, what was once dead. He will make all things new. And it's here that Matthew reveals the reaction of the chief priest and the scribes. 
They see the excitement of the crowd. They, they see the hope of the people. Little children are catching hold of the enthusiasm, and they're crying out to Jesus in the temple itself, Hosanna, save us to the son of David. The scribes and the chief priests see this, and according to verse 15, they are indignant. They cannot believe that Jesus would allow this adulation to happen to them. This is akin to blasphemy. And they ask Jesus, do you not hear what the children are saying? And I love the response of Jesus. Yes, I hear them. In fact, have you not read Psalm 8? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Once again, Jesus is meeting the requirements of Scripture, but, but don't miss the nuance again here. By quoting Psalm 8, he is telling these religious leaders, the praise that these children are giving is to God's glory. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 2, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus is Yahweh's glory. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. The triune God cares about justice and suffering and salvation and his own glory. And according to verse 17, Jesus completes his first day in Jerusalem and he returns to Bethany that evening. And so as we contemplate this, this remarkable event, we need to think about it knowing the end of the week. Jesus was well received into the city. It's a wonder. But did they really know whom they were welcoming? Did they know that he was the king of glory? Did they recognize him? I mean, the children called him the son of David. The blind and, and the lame that were there received his healing. We, we read in verse 11 that they were willing to recognize him at least as a prophet from Nazareth. And yet we also saw that the religious leaders rejected him. Later in the week, they're going to be the ones that are going to lead this same exact crowd to shout, crucify him, crucify him. That's just going to happen the following Friday. This crowd shouts, save us. The same one that shouts, save us, will seek to destroy the very man who came to restore the sight to the blind and mobility to the lame. And what of the disciples? Surely they get it, right? But these same men that clamored around Jesus in his adoration will desert him on Thursday night when he is arrested. This week is inaugurated by praise for a king. It is exciting, and many were caught up in the enthusiasm. But Jesus is not here for the crowd's approval. He is not here to please his disciples. And even though the children are precious in his sight, he is not here so that they might sing his praises. He is here to accomplish a mission that will please his father. And though he begins the week surrounded by adulation, he must finish the week in utter condemnation. And he must do so alone. Philippians 2, 7 through 11, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point 
of death, even death on a cross. At the end of this week, all by himself, Jesus will enter through another gate. He will come before the presence of the Father as the perfect sacrifice. And when he hangs on the cross, the sin of his elect will be draped upon him. Every sin of yours, every sin of mine, the sin that that I thought of last night, the sin that I'm going to commit tomorrow, all of it will be laid upon him. And he will receive the wrath of the Father that we deserved for our rebellion. He who knew no sin will become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He does what only he can do. He takes the burden of our punishment upon himself and then he wipes the slate completely clean so that those of us who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Only Jesus can do this. He will conquer the reign of sin and its consequence, death. Jesus will enter into those heavenly gates to make restitution for our rebellion. There is only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And here's the rub. As Jesus entered the city, he will be king and savior on his own terms, not on sinful humanities. Did they not know what they were asking for when they cried out, save us? What did they mean when they shouted those words? Salvation from what? Salvation from the Roman government? Salvation from financial pressures? Salvation from grief they felt over losing loved ones, either to a a broken relationship or to death? Save us from the indignity of being oppressed or or having some right of ours that is being suppressed and taken away. There are many who would come to Jesus with open arms as long as he does their bidding if he saves them from what they want to be saved from. But Jesus doesn't give that option. He comes to address the immediate problem the problem that causes us not only to live in an evil world, but the problem that separates us from a holy God. And he will save us from that in his way. He will do so alone. He will be despised and rejected by man, a a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus will be rejected by all. Even at one point, his father, for just a brief time, so that we might be received by God.
But now is the time to ask, what say you? What do you say about Jesus? How do you receive it? Do you truly recognize who he is? Because here's your offer. You can say he's a great prophet, and you can admit that Jesus is a great man that did spectacular things, but that will not save you. You can stand in the aisles of the church, and you can raise your hands and get swept away in the emotions of the music and sing at the top of your lungs, but that will not save you. It's not enough to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I, I respect you. You're a pretty cool dude. You, you cannot keep Jesus on one side of your life and compartmentalize him while you live completely different on the other. You must recognize your helpless estate, that you are in sin, and that you need a Savior to save you from your sin. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. You must place your faith in what Jesus did on your behalf at the cross and believe that you actually need it. Today is the day of salvation. And why would you not come to him? He is gentle and he is kind. He is approachable. See, he approaches on a colt here, not some majestic steed that would trample you but in a way that you can reach out to him. He gave his entire self for you. He wants you to take advantage of that. He wants you to grasp hold of him with, his dirty hand, with your dirty hands so that you might embrace him. He wants to cleanse the inner recesses of your soul and make you whole again. Why would you not want to come to Jesus? The only reason that I can think of is pride. Pride. You don't want him ruling over you. Even though he wants nothing but the best for you. No, no. I'll give you some of this, Jesus, but I'm not going to let you rule over all. You won't allow him to take you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you won't have to fear evil knowing that his presence is with you the entire way. Or you think somehow, some way, in your pride, you can be good enough to stand before a holy and just God. That's the beauty of the gospel, is you don't have to. You don't have to. Jesus can stand there in your place. Receive the punishment that you deserve for every sin you've committed against God. And if you place your faith in that, he gives you his righteousness so that when you stand before this holy and just God, he sees you with the same love and affection and doting desire that he has for his son. Do not allow your pride to stand in the way of you receiving the love of this glorious Savior. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray 
as we approach this week, we will remember what makes us right with you, what reconciles us to you, and that, Lord, we would see that the only thing, the, the only way that we can be made right for you is if you intervened on our behalf and that you did so through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. That Christ Jesus came into the world to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb without blemish. That as he hung on the cross, he received the full wrath that we deserved for each and every sin and that we would place our faith in that. That, Lord, we wouldn't fall back on, on some paltry means of salvation like trying to be good enough like trying to make up for our past actions, like thinking in our pride that we don't even need it. But we pray, Lord, you would strip us of that and that you would allow us to see ourselves for who we are and Jesus Christ for who he is. Let us look and see that glorious Savior who makes a way for us to be with you. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen.